You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, the official podcast of the Coastal LA Singles Ministry, where our focus is reaching up, reaching in, and reaching out. But it's great to be together. We're doing a series tonight. It's the life-changing uh, Word of God. Tonight's part two, and I'm going to teach you a study tonight about uh, discipleship and lordship. I think I'll teach you some new things, too. Uh, if you already know everything about it. Uh, but I want to just kind of get you in your mind. Oh, yes. Thank you. I have one announcement that I'll make, and then we'll get right in. He reminded me. Right there. September 6th, Saturday, we have a congregational event in Orange County at uh, uh, Mile Square Park. Uh, it's $10 for dinner. It's called the Day of Health and Fitness. And uh, there'll be a concert following uh, after that, which is new this year. So, $5 for parking. Just put it in your calendar. September 6th, Day of Health and Fitness. It's been a blast. There'll be probably three, four, five hundred singles there uh, there in Orange County. So, you guys ready now? Are we ready now, Jay? Okay, here we go. Nice. So, anyway, the Word of God is a, um, it's a powerful tool. And I think anything you have... Let me get everyone's attention. There's a lot of a, lot of a settling. So everyone gets settled. You guys ready to go? Okay, here we go. Take three. I'm ready. The Word of God is life-changing. And anything you've had for a while, we take it for granted. Whether it's where we live, our family, relationships, um, anything that we have for a while, you take it for granted. You get used to it. And the Word of God is something that's so precious it's, it's, you can't put a price tag on it. Not the actual print, not the book, but what it says. The fact that we have access to the words of God. God's Spirit written down for us. And so I hope that uh, today you can get a greater sense of awe that you get to hold and handle uh, the Word of God. Look at these uh, three verses about the Word of God. Jason talked about this today. It says, As for God... His way is perfect. His laws are, it says, as, as God, for God His way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. He is a shield for all who take refuge in Him. The word of God is flawless. People always say, I found a mistake. I say, where? Well, doesn't it say, no, where did it, that's just your conjecture. That's just what you think. Where does it say that? Well, it says something about, can you show me the verse? The Bible's flawless, and we, we've done studies on it at different times over the last several years. Psalm 119, verse 89, it says, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. I had a chance to do a father-daughter trip uh, with Gina, my middle daughter. She's 15, and we went to Yosemite, and we went and hiked Half Dome, and then we also uh, went to the, you know, the giant trees. And uh, I just thought about that one tree called the grizzly bear or the grizzly something. Almost 2,000 years old, this tree. And as I stood there, I said, Gina, do you realize how many people have lived and died? How many nations, cultures, things have been invented, wars, just how much has happened in the world that's just come and gone in the last almost 1,900 years since this tree has been here in Yosemite? I said, doesn't that just make you feel small? That how short we're here, how insignificant we are in, a, in the scope of compared to God? And it says that God's word, it's eternal. It's goes on forever and ever and ever. And it's, 
it stands firm. It, it's stood the test of time. It's not... It's not ever been proven wrong, or it can't be shaken. It stands firm in the heavens. And then the last verse, Psalm 119, 138, it says, The statutes that you've laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. God's Word can be completely and fully trusted. When we feel it can be trusted, it can be trusted. When we don't feel like it can be trusted, it can be trusted. When we're feeling anxious, it can be trusted. God's Word is fully trustworthy. And I hope you think about that for a second. Flawless. Eternal and firm. On and on and on. And it's trustworthy. It's been tested over and over and over again. Let's not take God's Word for granted, both for what we get to read and also for ourselves, but what we get to share with others. You know, this uh, mushroom right here, is um, an interesting mushroom. It's where 95% of lethal mushroom poisoning is uh, in this, with this mushroom. And there's several different types of mushrooms like this. And um, they're called the death cap mushrooms. And part of the problem is they look very similar to non-poisonous mushrooms. And so back in 97, a very wealthy man that lived in Santa Rosa, California, was out mushroom gathering like I guess wealthy people do. Not my thing, you know, mushroom gathering. But, and he was out mushroom gathering and he found this incredible delicacy mushroom that looked like this mushroom that you could eat and was edible, but it was actually one of the four or five death cap mushrooms uh, that kills most people. And he went home and had dinner with it and he died. Experts are warning inexperienced mushroom enthusiasts, leave the picking to trained mycologists who will not be fooled by poisonous varieties that closely resemble the non, their non-poison cousins. A poison control center administrator said, a level of presumed expertise is not enough to save your life. And I think that's kind of how we go through life. We say, well, I know enough. I've seen enough. I can handle enough. I can do enough. And yet, only God's word is trustworthy. We can't even trust our own emotions, our own thoughts. One of the most sinister aspects of this deadly mushroom poisoning, writes this reporter, is the delay between ingestion and onset of symptoms. So by the time you eat it, you don't feel sick. But by the time you realize, uh uh-oh, that was the wrong mushroom, it's now too late. The stronger the poison, the longer it takes to show itself. And by the time the patient is aware what they've ingested, there's nothing that can be done. Some things you should never attempt by trial and error. For the price of the mistake is far too high. And that's with us, with our beliefs. We can't just go through life going, hey, you know what, I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll figure it out with the big guy when I get there. You ever heard someone say that to you? Me and the big guy are cool. Think about how God likes to be called the big guy. I'm not too worried about it. I think I'll do okay. Done fine so far. Well, by the time you've ingested Satan's lies, by the time you've ingested the way of living that that the world tells us that's wrong, it's often way too late. Too much is at stake, and the consequences of our actions are too great. The only expert we can fully trust 
is the Word of God. And so I just want to encourage you and remind you and challenge you and inspire you, you have access to the Word of God. You have access to be able to read it, meditate on it, memorize it, study it, get to know it better and better, lean on it, get strength from it, be warned by it, warn others with it. And then you have the privilege and the high calling and the expectation from God to take that, the word, the antidote, and to share it with others. For us to say, oh, I know the word is powerful, but I keep it to myself. It really works well for me. It's really self-centered of us. And so my hope is that you would realize that if God's entrusted you with the word, that God wants us to take it and know it and share the original thing. You know, this is a, a thing here called the yoke. It's not something we see in our country. Uh, we use mechanized machinery for our farming. If you've ever driven through farm country in central California or in the Midwest or the Northwest or different places we farm, we don't use this anymore. But in some of the poorer countries today, they still use the yoke. And right here, one, one uh, of the two oxen or cattle goes right through here, their neck, and the other one right through there. And then there's a chain that goes through the top. See, there's a little hole right there. And then there's a chain that goes through there to try to keep them together so that you get double the power. If one's tired, the other one keeps it going. If one's dragging, the other one keeps it going. If one's moving too fast, the other one says, hey, you're going to wear us out before midday. And so often, I've shared this with you before, maybe you remember, maybe you don't, they'll take an older oxen and put them with the younger oxen and they'll call the younger oxen the yoke fellow. Kind of a weird name. But it'll teach the younger oxen, this is how you roll. This is how it goes. This is the pace. This is what to do. And the Bible says that's who Jesus is in our lives. He's the experienced one who's gone to the heavens and back. He's the only one that was... He came from heaven himself and became a human being. He's the only one that's ever seen God. He's the only one that knows really what's in the afterlife. And so Jesus is sent to help us. Not just to die on the cross, though that was the ultimate goal, but to teach us who to be, how to be, how to carry ourselves. I love this verse in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, verse 30. It says, Come to me, Jesus doesn't force us. All you who are weary and burdened. We were, out of ca- we were out of a caffeinated coffee today. I just had decaf today. And I said to somebody, man, I'm tired. Just had decaf today. You know, Anybody weary and burdened tonight? Seriously? Okay, we got a few people. Okay, so you guys over here. Um, anyone weary or burdened emotionally? Financially? Physically? Mentally? Okay, you're depressing me now. No, I'm just kidding. We all are. And the older you get, the more you realize, oh, okay. Because you just have more miles around the track. More opportunities to be hurt. Let yourself down, let others down. But Jesus, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What does this picture have to do with rest? That looks like work. That looks like Slavery. That looks like hardship. That looks like oppression. I don't want anything around my neck. 
I don't want to be dragged by something else or someone else. Unless you're hooked up and connected with somebody that's perfect and pure and always knows what pace to take, what to do, where to go, how to be, who to be, knows when to slow you down, speed you up, knows when we're going to rest, when we're going to take a day off, knows when he's, you're wanting to go in one direction and he's, no, we're going this way and you're just you're going back and forth. He's like, all right, I'm, I, you know, I'm the son of God. I don't wear out, so keep going. You will soon. Do you, you know what I mean? If you're yoked with him, someone you fully trust, someone that's perfect, he says, you'll find rest for your souls. He says, take my yoke upon you. Is this on your neck today? Or are you just a religious person that goes to church two times a week? Are you following Jesus? He says, take my yoke. It's all volunteer upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. Really? Compared to Satan's yoke? Yes. Compared to the world's yoke? Yes. Easy in a general sense? No. But easy in comparison to where sin will take us. Will take you, will take me. I want to talk about discipleship tonight. We're not going to do the whole study. We're going to look at three verses in the study. But I'm try- I want to get to your heart. Romans, and I want to kind of develop this concept of being a slave. That's the word the Bible uses for following Jesus. Being a slave to him. And it says, don't you know that whenever you offer, whenever, when you offer yourselves to someone to obey him as slaves, remember he says, take my yoke upon you, it's our, our offering, you are slaves to the one whom you obey. Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or whether you are, sl- uh, or, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. You know, Jesus came on this earth. He was here for just over 33 years. He didn't reveal himself till year 30. So for about three, three and a half years, he said, here I am, who I, here's who I am, here I am. He never traveled more than 100 miles from his home. He never wrote a book. He never used multimedia. I mean, it was kind of intense what he did. How simple, how seemingly not very powerful in a small part of the world. But from that concept of discipleship, he got 12 guys to follow him. One guy didn't make it. There's always someone that doesn't make it. I don't want to be the guy that doesn't make it. Seriously. I hope you don't want to be the guy. And just not wanting to be that person is not enough. I'm determined. I will not be the person that takes the yoke off my neck. I'm capable. I don't want to. I don't want to allow myself to be that proud or hard-hearted or ungrateful because that's what will happen. But he got 12 guys. One guy threw the yoke off, but he got 11 other guys to die for him. Now, John the Baptist didn't die. He was boiled in oil. He was exiled to an island. He was beaten a lot. I mean, pretty rough. But all 11 that were left, and then you know Judas got replaced with a new guy named Matthias, So all 12 of them were martyred in some form or fashion. John got to live in old age, but it was a rough life. But the rest were killed rather early on, beheaded and speared and 
crucified Andrew in the shape of an X. How? Why? What? How would they do that? Jesus did something in their hearts that was more than just them being self-important following this really cool religious guy that does miracles and makes them feel important. He did something in their hearts. You know, in September, I've been a Christian 26 years. Um, yesterday, I was in Tucson for the last, like, two days getting Danielle, my oldest, set up for, you know, residency and her job and her apartment and everything else. And, and I went out jogging at the U of A uh, where I went to college, where I was met in 1988, in June of 88. And uh, I was jogging on the main mall, beautiful campus, and I... It's just good for my soul. You know, I went, I jogged by this apartment complex and I smoked a bong with a guy back in the 80s. And I thought about that. He was called wake and bake. He'd get out of bed and he'd just wake up. And he just, literally, you know, where you get up and you do your brushing your teeth, he'd grab the bong and he's, good morning, you know. And uh, I thought about that. And then here's that apartment, like flat, 26 whatever years later, 28 years later. Wow, God's changed my life. Praise God. I went by another apartment where I had, you know, um, bought or sold, sold a pound of pot to somebody back in the early 80s. And I went by, you know, just all my, not all of them, but just many places of sin that I remember like yesterday. That here it is like close to 30 years later and it's like, wow, that was me. That's me. Like, it's only God that he's rescued me. Then I jogged by the library twice, you know, both days. And I, that's where I was met. I was met, in the, I was met on my job, but I was shared with at the library, in the, in, the, uh, in the courtyard, or foyer. I mean, the foyer of the library where they have all the pay phones. I was using an illegal cell phone, uh, a legal calling card to call my girlfriend. And you could get, back in the 80s, you could get like, they have these computer programs that would run numbers and just run them until you get these calling cards that you could use for free, and then you'd have to get another one, another one. So I'd be in the lobby, you know, talking around on the pay phone. And that's where I was met. Or shared with. I was met at a bar, but I was shared with there. That's a long story, too. But anyway. <laughs> and I'm just thankful. Like, I'm really thankful. That here, like, close to 30 years later, my daughter is a disciple, and only the grace of God that, and only the grace of God that there's a church there, and only the grace of God that she's going to live with these amazing sisters and only the grace of God that she's got a great church leader there that she loves dearly. And You know what I mean? And then yesterday we went to the Indian Reservation uh, about 20 miles south of Tucson, 15 miles from the U of A, called the Yaqui Tribe. And I found them online. One of the sisters recommended it. And Danielle started her own nonprofit. So I said, Danny, let's do it for the Native Americans. Like, while you're in college, why don't you set up your You Can Do It program? And so we, there was me and Danielle and educational director and the person that does adult school and the person that does the after school program and other, just having this panel discussion and it's just so cool. She's like, Dad, wow, this is amazing. She'd never been on an Indian reservation. I was trying to explain to her, hey, it's another world. But it's only God. It's only because I put that thing on my neck and around my neck, I mean, on my shoulders and around my neck. And I, I just want to ask, how do you feel about being a slave to Christ? Because there is only two options. And I shared those stories with you to say, it's only God. Because I know how self-centered I am. I know I'm one of only 
uh, two people that have not been divorced out of my seven siblings. So only, and I don't judge them. It's, it's only God. It's only because of being a slave to Christ. How's your wholehearted obedience? It says, though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted. You've been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I think it's in our nature to try to follow Jesus and not be his disciple. To start there, but to stop. And when you think about being a slave to sin, what does sin do? It takes, it uses, it kills, it, ex- it doesn't care about you, sin. It's about expending. You and I, when we're a slave to sin, we are a means to an end of someone else's pleasure, someone else's purposes, our own devices. But when we're a slave to sin, when that yoke is on us with sin and just free reign, what does that do to us? What does being a slave to sin do? It just destroys us. Think about the master sin. He doesn't care about us. He doesn't want to help us. He doesn't care about our well-being. He just extracts and exposes and exploits. That's what the Bible says Satan does. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life. He doesn't say they will, because if you don't put it on your neck, you won't. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Think about what the slave of Christ does. He gives to us. He honors us. He protects us. He guides us away from bad things and leads us to good things. He's patient with us. He's, built, he's building us up. He cares for us. He loves us. You know, when you look at the word, you know, the, the, the saying Matthew 7, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? And isn't that challenging? He says, why do you say Lord, Lord, but then you don't do what I say? Being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, it is no joke. It's hard. You said it was an easy burden. Comparatively. But it costs everything. It, it's more than just attendance. It's more than just, I'm stopped cussing. And compared to, I'm, I'm incredible. It's more than that. I mean, it's really cost you something. And the word Lord, kurios, in the Greek, means master or owner. And it was originally a slavery term. And I mean, think about that. How do you feel about being Jesus' slave? Puts a little different twist to it. A slave or a bondservant, that's so the master word, Lord, means uh, master or owner. He owns us. He rules us. A slave or a bondservant, doulos, means if you were someone's slave or their bondservant, meaning I want to come to the U.S. from China, I don't have the money, so I will work in your kitchen, I'll work in your garden, I'll work in your factory for free for four years if you'll get me over there. So you trade your body. That's a bondservant, someone that says, I volunteer. So our thing is surrendering everything. You know, Danielle starts her first job in like three weeks. And she sat across from her boss... Um, 
She's doing an AmeriCorps job, and she wants to go to India over Christmas and for, with Hope Youth, Hope Youth Corps. And so it's her, you know, her first day, and she says, hey, I want to see about getting time off. But she said it in a nice way, in a respectful way. And, and the lady goes, no, um, you, uh, you, know, you don't get any vacation time until you've been here six months. I'm so sorry, um, but it's not fair to the other employees. That's the policy. So if I let you go, then I could get sued, and it just doesn't creates weirdness in the company. And Danielle's like, okay, you know, in her, in her body language. And then she goes, and by the way, you know, I own you. She was being lighthearted, but not really. Um, Danielle's going to work with the with the disabled, severely disabled, with the arts, music, dance, play, painting, all that cool stuff with the disabled. And so she's doing an AmeriCorps job. And she goes, once you sign that, well, she goes, well, not yet. Once you sign that contract, though. For AmeriCorps, I own you. We own you. But you don't have to sign it, she said. Daniel's like, no, no, I'm going to be signing it. I get it. Okay, yeah, all right. And, you know, she was being funny, but not really. And I think, does Jesus own us? Have we surrendered everything to Jesus? You say, Marco, I did, but I don't know. How do you ever? It's something we have to do over and over and over again. Here's why... I want to inspire with this whole idea when Jesus is your master. I mean, look at these thoughts about Jesus being our master versus sin. When, because, see, we look at the word slave as a very um, negative term, and rightly so. But in Jesus' day, if you were a slave or a bondservant to someone that was very wealthy, very respected, very kind, very caring, you could actually be incredibly set up in society. You could be educated. You could own property. You could have a lot of authority. You could have a lot of influence. It could really help you to be a, a slave to a very good master. In fact, look at some of the things about what you think about when Jesus is your master. Number one, your importance and your identity is in his importance and his identity. There's not a person in this room that doesn't struggle with insecurity. I know the guys are like, well, maybe in football, but no, I'm serious. There is not a, or maybe one video game. There is not a person in this room that doesn't struggle at times. Just put the right elements in your life, and you will feel like, well, can I do anything right? You know, I mean, just like, you get down on yourself. You you focus on your flaws, your importance, and your identity when you're his, and you belong to him. It's in him. In his importance and in his identity. And I put verses there for you. You're part of his family. Imagine if your father was the president of the United States, or soon it could be your mother, but still, I'm just saying, you wouldn't walk in the White House tiptoeing, I'm so sorry, Mr. Secret Service, if it's any possible way I can come in. Yes, you'd have to have the proper badge and everything else, but you'd walk right on in. You know, Mark went in the house. You know, you just kind of, you would not, you wouldn't be very formal. There'd be a sense of, I can come right into into the uh, Oval Office right here. It's my dad. I can lean back, put my feet on some old furniture. You share in his inheritance. What when someone passes on, they leave an inheritance. What they own transfers to you, depending how it's been set up. If we're Jesus, we belong to him, we share in his inheritance. Your protection is his concern because you belong to him. 
It's his responsibility. 1 Corinthians 3, 6 says, hey, you're the temple of God. And if anyone destroys you, God will destroy them. Isn't that a great verse? That kind of makes me stand a little taller than I already am. Uh, Number five, your complete needs are taken care of. If you belong to him, if you're his slave, then you don't have to worry about where's your food coming from. And you don't have to worry about where's your clothing coming from. And you don't have to worry about That doesn't mean you're not involved in the process. But at the end of the day, whose responsibility is it? His. Because you belong to him. Read Matthew 6. Number 6. You're treated with extreme kindness, love, and concern. The only reason Jesus wants to be your master is for your benefit. Number 7. You're taught everything by him personally. Jesus himself, Hebrews chapter 1 says, came down to instruct us. That when we see him, we see the exact representation of God. Number 8. Your relationship is important to him, not just what you produce for him. John 15, 15 says, I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. He's saying, you're not just one of my slaves. I care about you. I care what you think. I want to partner with you. I love you. That's amazing. And finally, number nine, and this is not an exhaustive list. There's many other benefits that come from Jesus being your master, you being his follower, is you're only asked to do what he's already done. Think about it. Jesus, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 4, was tempted in every way just as we are. You say, no way, in every way. Rejection, loneliness, fear, anxiety, lust, pride, selfishness, cowardice. Pick something. He was tempted with it. He was fully human. Doesn't mean he gave in to it, but he was tempted with it. And just like when you're tempted and you wrestle with, you know, temptation can be a form of suffering where it's just, it takes everything out of you to get through whatever. You feel worn out after you get through it. Jesus did the same thing. What an incredible master. He's not just up there telling us what to do from afar. He is in life with us, helping us. So here's two questions for you to filter through our own lens. God's given you two eyes. Can you, you know, as you think about your lens, as you think about being a disciple of Jesus, number one, ask yourself, will this please Jesus? You say, what? Whatever. Will this choice, action, inaction, Please, Jesus. Will it please God? Is this something he'd be, do, want? I'm his slave. He's my master. I'm, I belong to him. I'm his property. I gave, I volunteered. I put the yoke on. I reflect him now. So will this please him? Whether he's physically here or not, will this please him? Will, will this, whether anyone else sees what I'm doing, Will this please him? If no one else sees what I'm not doing, will this please him? It's such a great qualifier. It reduces it simply. Will this please him? And it gives you incredible motivation. Because there's a right part of pleasing people and there's a wrong part of pleasing people. And we probably err both ways at different times. 
We don't want to be cooperative enough, or we please, but our heart's not right. You know what I'm saying? But when we, when we reduce it down to, will this please Jesus? Then we get up and do what we got to do. Or then we hold back. Or then we humble ourselves. Or then we forgive. Or then we look away. You know, I, I came up with a little tool for lust. Um, brothers, we struggle with this more than the women do. You want a, you want a little tri- you want a freebie? Guys are like, well, I don't struggle with that. But if you want to share your problems with me. Um, <laughs> girls coming by, you know your temptation is? What? Yeah, if you're, you know, it could be a jogger, a walker, a pedestrian, a car, a bicycle, a skateboard, roller skates, beach, right? It's just, it does, takes no effort. It's natural. Just tell yourself this. You got no business. You have no business. Like, is, is your natural neck wants to turn? Just t- t- no, you have no business. You have no right. Don't. That wouldn't please God. That's not yours. It's not for you. You have no business. And it's just, you know, it's a good little tool. You watch tomorrow. You go, I don't even struggle with lust, but I'll, I'll test it out for you, Marco. Okay, you watch tomorrow. Marco, pray for me. You have no business. Just try it out. So when you're muttering your breath at work, you got no business. What'd you say? Nothing, nothing. I wasn't talking to you. Talking to, talking to myself. The second question is, will this, will, will what? Will whatever. Will this bring Jesus glory? Would somebody go, man, that makes God look good. Your attitude, your, the way you humbled yourself. You know, I told Danielle, I said, Danielle, you want to do well in your job? Take the worst jobs. From day one, anytime they say, who wants to, you know, take the stuff out to the incinerator or whatever, you know, I'll do it. I said, and serve your coworkers. Am I right? And so we're asking ourselves, will this bring Jesus glory? What does that mean? That means that, that when somebody looks at you, they may not realize it's God, but it magnifies God. Like they see God in you. I was so touched, you know, as we're sitting at, these, at the Native American you know, the reservation and we're talking with these educators and different people. And there's Danielle, you know, just turned 18 just sitting across the table, just big smile, hippie hair, you know, um, with her ukulele, you know, sang to, sang to them a couple times. And, and I thought, this is so cool. She, there's just a genuineness and a warmth and, and a sincerity, and, and it's God. She's got her challenges, as I've got mine, and you've got yours. Trust me, everyone that's in her life, thank you for the help. But, but I just thought, this is so cool. You know, it's... She, trying to bring glory to God. And that's what we do as disciples. We bring glory to God. We make God look good. We make the master look good. We have his seal on us. People know us. Oh, you're one of those religious guys. No, I'm a Christian. Yeah, whatever. No, I'm a disciple. I'm a follower of Jesus. Right, whatever. No, they see God in us. How we serve the poor. How we sacrifice. Things we can't buy because we don't have the money if we're going to give to the Lord how we're disciplined, how we forgive, how we're vulnerable and share our sins and struggles and weaknesses, they see Christ in us. You know, I want to read this verse to you here as we're winding on down. Luke 9, 23. You say, I already know it. Okay, well then you probably should definitely open it up then. Luke 9, 23. You ready? Eddie, you ready? You got it? 
How do you have it? Your Bible's not even open yet. Come on, man. Okay, Luke 9, verse 23. Then he said to them all. Who does that include? You and me. If whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. You know, when you think of this verse, when you think of discipleship, lordship, following Jesus, if you're going to follow him, you have to deny yourself. See, I don't like people. I'm more of a loner. You're going to have to deny yourself. And take your time alone to recharge, but you're going to have to deny yourself. I've been a Christian a long time, and it hasn't happened for me. I've been a Christian a long time, and it hasn't happened for me the way I thought I was entitled in my mindset. I thought if X plus Y, I should get Z by now. I've been a Christian two decades. Where's mine? I thought I'd be prettier, wealthier, married, three kids. Whatever, I don't, whatever it is for you, where you kind of go, why hasn't God come through for me? Come on, everyone's felt that in some form or fashion. Or, boy, God's come through, but it wasn't the way I had hoped. <laughs> Jesus says if we're going to come after him, we have to deny ourselves. We have to put him first. We have to ask those two questions ourselves. We've got to say no to certain things and yes to other things. And we have to, more importantly, and please listen to this, we have to deal with our hearts. What does that mean? That means if you're not praying on your own, your heart's getting hard. If you're not reading the Bible on your own, your heart's getting harder. If you're not giving financially, your heart's getting harder. If you're not confessing your sin, your heart's getting even harder. You see, those are all actions. Those are duties. How are those things, what do those have to do with my heart? Well, if you're not dealing with your heart, then before you know it, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Our hearts get hard. Luke 14, verse 25, uh, a passage we're very familiar with. Jesus is turning with the crowds, and he says in verse 25, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, that's probably not our struggle. This one's our struggle. Yes, even their own life, they cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule you saying this person began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he'll send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciple. Wow, that's challenging. He says, you've got to love me more than your own family, 
more than your own parents, if you have a good relation with your parents, you get it, more than your own life. In fact, to the point where you've got to even carry a cross, it's going to be hard. And in spite of your doubts, your fears, your difficulties, march, keep walking to the cross. Or you can't be my disciple. You can't follow me. That's what I did, he says. You can do it. You have to do it. It's worth it. I'm a good master. He says, or otherwise it's like somebody getting into a project and they put all this money and time, but they don't realize I'm into this thing for the distance to the end. I've got to pay whatever it takes. If I have to go into debt to get this done, so be it. But I'm going to finish this project. That's what he's saying about our life. You know, you're a lot more in control of your faith than you think you are. You've just listened to the Elevate podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit elevatecoastal.com.